Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to our wellness series. In these three episodes, we approach wellness through understanding movement, sleep, and mindset. We get a firsthand look at the latest research from professors at Stanford on these topics, and we're excited to share some tips on how you can improve your wellness and health without feeling overwhelmed. Our first episode of the wellness series features a conversation with Stanford professor Abby King on creating health-enhancing environments, citizen science, and the power of small changes to make a big impact on our health. Thank you to the well-being at Stanford and Stanford Recreation and Wellness for sponsoring the series. And make sure to stay tuned through the end of this episode to learn how you can win a Boom water bottle. We are very lucky to be talking with Abby King today, who is a professor of epidemiology and population health and of medicine at the Stanford Prevention Research Center and a recipient of the Outstanding Scientific Contributions and Health Psychology Award from the American Psychological Association. She's the primary investigator of the Healthy Aging Research and Technology Solutions, or HEARTS Lab, and her research focuses on the development, evaluation, and translation of public health interventions to reduce chronic disease in the U.S. and globally. She's been such an inspiration to me during my PhD, and uh, we're just so excited to have you here for our wellness series. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's really a delight to be here. All right. So we're really excited to have you, Abby, and we're interested in where it all started. What first got you interested in studying population health and health promotion? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I actually started life as a clinical psychologist, but was always interested in health. And I think one of the reasons is because <clears throat> clinical psychologists, we tend to study the things that we ourselves have problems with. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I've always struggled with has been regular physical activity. I know it's good for me. I'm not bad at it or anything, but I've never been overly motivated to do it. And so um, for my master's thesis, actually, in my graduate program in clinical psychology, I conducted a study on college women and how to get them more motivated to do exercise throughout their week. Um, so for me, that's been a lifelong passion to tr try to figure out how can we make it easier to do the things that we all know that we should be doing, but that are so hard for us oftentimes to fit into our very busy lives. Mm, that's such a good point. And, and do you feel like your relationship with physical activity has changed then since you've started studying this? Or how, what, how does that journey look like um, in parallel to your journey um, as a researcher in the field? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Melissa. I, I discovered that it's really important for people like me to be studying things like that that are challenges because I can channel the 90% of the U.S. population that has trouble <laughs> doing physical activity on a regular basis. And most researchers go into things that are easy for them, that they're really into. So a lot of my colleagues uh, in the exercise field, the physical activity field are athletes 
or just have it's so physiologically easy for them to do it that they really can't imagine how the other 90% live where we know that it's important but it's not something that may be as high a priority for us as other things. Um, so, so that's been good. And also, as I've developed in my career, of course, when I talk with reporters, they always ask me, well, what do you do, Dr. King? So I have to make sure that I'm honest and, I, and I'm authentic and I, I stick with it so I can honestly report to them that, yes, I myself am active. <laughs> That's one way yeah, to motivate. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I feel like we use, use the word health a lot, and we, we've been hearing a lot about health research or what it means to be healthier. There's so many components of health. You talked about physical activity, but there's, you know, it's a term that really refers to so many different aspects of our life. And so we're curious what health means to you, what it, what it really looks like to be healthier, live a healthy life. Yeah, that, that's it's interesting to think about that. I think for me, it really has to do in living in ways now that will optimize my chances, other people's chances of, of being able to do and accomplish the things I want to do in my life. Um, so it's sort of um, a savings plan, I'm put, putting money in the bank now so that you can run through the finish line, as one of my colleagues so, so nicely put it, uh, the finish line of life doing the things that you really want to do all throughout your life. And, and we know as people get older that they really value being able to maintain what they've been doing and to add value to their community as well as in their own personal lives. So, so doing things now, really small things, small choices, um, during one's day or week can really have benefits both in the present and also in the future. Yeah, I like thinking of it as that insurance plan. Like we buy, we pay so much for health insurance, just, you know, like why not pay that way in physical, you know, also health insurance. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Making those choices that are going to optimize your chances of being able to accomplish all the things that people want to accomplish in their lives. Well, I love this framing and I um, also thinking back to sort of why you started in the field, being part of that 90% of people that <laughs> struggle to motivate themselves to, to make the healthier choices. I'm wondering what are those barriers? What are the main barriers for you? What are the main barriers you found in your research uh, to living a healthy life that make it uh, difficult to obtain this for, for many people? Yeah, yeah, I think... Actually, one of the biggest barriers that people often are not aware of are our own environments. So this country is a country of personal choice. So the U.S. sort of anchors the extreme uh, in, around the world in terms of it's up to everybody. It's their personal responsibility. You have to you know, make your own choices and then live with those choices. And they, that kind of thinking completely discounts the incredible importance of our local environments and contexts and making those choices harder, easier, or actually even out of reach. So a lot of my research focuses not just on individuals, but individuals within the context of their local environments. So people living uh, or listening to this 
podcast might want to think about their own day or week now that we're heading back to campus and everything. You know, like what makes it harder in your local environment on campus or wherever you may be um, to, to live in healthy ways, to make those small choices, which may be eating more vegetables, um, avoiding alcohol a little bit more, whatever it might be. And oftentimes we find our environments really make it so much more difficult. If if I could make the world over, um, I would make the healthy choice, the mindless choice, so that we didn't all have to think so hard about, okay, well, how how am I going to eat healthy for lunch today? I only have 10 minutes. I'm going to grab and go this thing. You know, you know, it would be lovely if the healthy choice was the mindless choice. And so um, we oftentimes encourage people to think about their own environments, their home environments, their dorm environments, whatever environments they're living in, um, to think about how can I set this up to make it a little easier for me to go for that walk or to, you know, um, re- control my stress or whatever <clears throat> the issue may be. Our environment can really help us or, or can hinder us. Mm. Could you give us maybe like a yeah specific example of a way that environment might help or hinder being physically active? And are there specific um places you found in the U.S. or around the world that are particularly, have particularly health-enhancing environments that that support being active, and what are some of those components? Yeah, that's a great question, Melissa. Europe, especially more traditional Europe, has done a much better job of making active living the default. So, for instance, if you look at the bicycle rates, bicycling to work, for instance, or around one's community, it is so much safer and easier for for many Europeans to do that, to hop on a bike and be safe, you know, in a bike lane that's actually separated from cars. We have a very, as everybody knows, a very car-centric society here where when people oftentimes have been developing cities and communities and infrastructure, they think about cars as opposed to pedestrians and bikes. And, uh, you know, so that's something that slowly is changing here in the U.S. We're very lucky to live in the Bay Area, very progressive. Um, People here care about being able to try to bike more safely. Um, Sometimes it's hard because the infrastructure is not really there to support it. But I've been impressed with the growth, even in just the mid-peninsula, of safer bike lanes for everybody. Um, so people are making thinking more about that. My husband, who works at the VA uh, right down the street from Stanford, um, he started to bike to to work now and feel safer doing it. Um, so I, I think that those kinds of things can make a huge difference. And of course, we know at Stanford, it's a very bike centric place for students and faculty to get around. Um, actually, 
yeah. for some of us, the danger is watching out for the bicyclists <laughs> as you're trying to cross campus <laughs> yes. and, and get somewhere <laughs> because sometimes the bicyclists don't necessarily follow some of the rules or principles of biking. So that's another danger we want to make sure we mitigate. But but all in all, that kind of thing, I find little simple cues are very helpful. So what we often recommend to people, for instance, to get them walking a bit more is to put, put your sneakers, your walking shoes, whatever you like to walk in, put them right out there by the door so that they cue you, okay, I should go for a walk. Um, you know, any of those little cues can help. Also, having a buddy call you up for a tennis game or, you know, having your social support system. Some accountability. Also, yeah, yeah. Help yeah. with that as long as it doesn't turn into nagging, which we all hate. Um, you know, as long <laughs> as it's helpful and yeah. supportive. And and also looking for ways to just sort of build build an activity or healthy eating, or stress reduction, whatever it might be, into your day so that you don't have to carve out an extra half an hour to go for a run or something. You know, look for ways, because we do know that lighter forms of physical activity are very beneficial, and moderate forms of activity like walking actually work better, you know, if you look at the evidence for stress management, for anxiety reduction, for to help mitigate depressed feelings. And so these acute benefits, if we can look for ways to build more movement in naturally throughout our day, that could make it easier for people. Yeah, I really like that because it feels less of a less of a burden in that way, whether you know, it's just walking to the grocery store or the farmer's market or walking to dinner. Um, I really enjoy those types of, I actually recently heard the term uh, commute running, which seems a little intense, but <laughs> <laughs> changing your morning commute into a run. Uh, <laughs> See, that sounds stressful but, to me. Yeah. So, so what yeah. one thing that sounds great to someone and they arrive all up and energized. Yeah. For me, I, I'd be all sweaty and stress, stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's so good to know that about ourselves, too, because I think sometimes if I have something too large in my head of what I want to do, then I end up putting that off and then not wanting to to follow through with that. Oh, Melissa, that is such a great point. That That is so important for people to think about. Again, if, if you have to like carve out a specific time and, and it just seems overwhelming sometimes to be doing that, again, to sneak it in. Hidden moments of movement are great and can actually benefit your health and your mental health. Um, people, you know, there I, I co-chaired the most recent federal guidelines for physical activity in the U.S. They, that came out in 2018, and um, they they made it really clear. The evidence is very clear now that the relationship between brain health and regular physical activity is significant. And these are these acute benefits for everybody um, where, you know, if you're, if you're walking more, if you're moving more, that's going to give you an acute boost during the day in terms of your mental uh, cognitive thinking, your brain power, your memory, as well as also 
helping to reduce feelings of anxiety and depressive mood or, or things like that, stress. And is it true that you can get all of those great benefits just even from the light activities, as you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, and I think for young people, moderate to vigorous activity is the key. And moderate activity means a brisk walk. You know, I I think moderate activity, brisk walking, biking around campus, doubles tennis, you know, any of those things getting on your skateboard or longboard. I'm trying to think like what a lot of students <laughs> like to do. Um, throwing around a Frisbee, all of that stuff counts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you can get so much out of movement too, when you're talking about those things that are, that are social too. I, one of my favorite things to do is put on a song and dance and that helps with my mood because I'm also like, what song do I need right now? Do I need something uplifting? Am I feeling you know, anxious, and I put on music that just feels, you know, what I need to feel. And I, yeah, that's one of my favorite ways to move. We're taking like meetings on a walk and, and ways to sort of combine, you know, your exercise with things you already need to do. That's exactly it. That's a perfect example of mindless physical activity that you build into your day. Walking meetings, we do that all the time in the medical school. Um, and that's a huge thing. And I love the dancing thing. I, I'm into that too. <laughs> Um, you know, I can't sit still when I hear music, I have to move. Um, so, (laughs) you know, I, I think anything like that, um, we should have made this a dancing meeting. Yeah. (laughs) I worry a little bit about kids or students, well, elementary school kids through college students and older, um, sitting all day and actually some elementary student schools um, are getting better at keeping kids active even while they're sitting you know stringing those theraband things like around chairs Uh, so kids Mm. can move you know while they're sitting there um so movement of all sorts i think can be energizing it can keep you focused on on what's being discussed in class um standing in the back of the class. So we, we really um, encourage at the Stanford Prevention Research Center um, standing active applause, we call it, where at the end of someone's talk, everyone stands up and claps. We want to break up those sitting. Sitting is another independently I don't want to say dangerous, it makes it sound really, but but it's not good for your health. So you can be very active during a portion of your day, but if you're sitting eight to 10 hours a day in class, at the computer, uh, doing video games, whatever, um, in front of a screen, that independently can be detrimental to your health. So you need to do both. You need to do less sitting and more activity. One way to do it is, is to get up in a class. If you're now, we're going to be starting classes. A lot of them are going to be in person. You know, halfway through the class or whatever, get up and stand in the back. You know, hopefully professors will be supportive of that. Um, I, you know, I think that that is an important kind of health behavior to do. Wow, all of these tips are so exciting, and I'm really excited to share them on the podcast and also share them with our lab. Cause I think our lab is always trying to think of uh, new ways to do this like as a group. So we're really excited. Um, thank you for sharing all those. Um, 
we'd like to switch gears just a little bit because a lot of the work that you do is using citizen science. And I didn't know that much about it before, you know, learning about your own work. And it's really expanded my views of, you know, the scope of uh, research and what it can mean and how science can impact the community in more ways than just publishing the outcomes or results from a study. So could you give us a brief overview of what citizen science is and a recent example of a project or one you're really excited about that's coming up that uses citizen science? Sure, Hannah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, citizen science, this is my passion these days. <laughs> and so I'm glad you asked me awesome. about it. Thank you. <laughs> I probably would have brought it up even if you hadn't asked <laughs> It's nice to be asked. Um, so we talk about different kinds. Of, first of all, citizen science is an American tradition. So citizen science has been around since the founding fathers Wow, you know, we're around. So it, it's something that uh, Americans have been involved with for a very long time. And we like to think about three different types of citizen science. Um, we call them citizen science for the people, with the people, and by the people. So citizen science for the people tends to cover most citizen science that's done in the medical school here. Um, biomedical science where Residents and patients are asked to donate tissue samples, blood work, um, these kinds of things to foster science. A very important type of citizen science, but usually um, the patient or resident's participation ends at the clinic door. Someone else is then using their materials, their survey information uh, to advance science. Citizen science with the people is very popular in the natural sciences. So the Woods Institute and some of our great engineering colleagues, um, you know, astronomy, ecology, where people are asked to actually go out and collect data. And so you'll hear about the Audubon every year, the great American bird count, where you can download a form, go into your backyard, and count the birds you see. This is very, very important type of citizen science. We call it with the people because um, people are more active and actually collecting data. The data then get pushed to the scientists and they utilize it. It's a very important um, type of citizen science. What we do, our brand of citizen science, we call citizen science by the people, which is one step further and getting residents completely immersed in the scientific process from soup to nuts, from the whole, the whole process. So not only do they help us think about the questions that are important to ask, they collect the data, and they don't just push the data to scientists. They actually work together to interpret and build consensus around their own data about what they have found. And then they learn how to prioritize it in terms of what's important yet feasible to change in their communities. And they work together with stakeholders, with decision makers, you know, political people, or it could be um, the planning department of a city, uh, whatever it may be to actually make change. So our brand of citizen science we, is part of a participatory action. 
science of citizen. And when we say citizen science, we use the traditional definition of citizen, which um, is simply inhabitants of a particular locale, regardless of legal status or anything like that. It's just people who live in, in a specific area. So I'll give you an example of our, our form of citizen science. It's called Our Voice, and we call it that because it's, it's, it's by the people and it's action-oriented. And oftentimes we work with communities that haven't had a voice. So underrepresented, disadvantaged communities all around the world. You know, we're, we're in 20 plus countries and counting now. Um, and it starts with a mobile app, a very simple to use mobile app called the Discovery Tool. That's in 13 languages and counting, very easy for us to translate it into many different languages. And people can learn in literally five minutes, people who have never touched mobile devices before can learn in five minutes how to use this app. And the app is they go for a walk. First of all, this the residents decide with the researchers and other organizations what the issue might be. And I'll give you a Stanford example of a wonderful um, Our Voice project that was just published by a student here along with Mike Bioki, one of our wonderful faculty in the medical school, and it was on gender-based violence at Stanford. Wow. And there were um, some Stanford students who used the discovery tool to walk around campus throughout a week or more, and to identify places where they felt safe and places where they became more aware of their gender. And sometimes it was in a classroom. It was interesting. This was a very important, and I'm happy to send you the publication on this. Um, It was a very important study because oftentimes when we do citizen science, we're focusing on external environments, things, you know, safety and security on the streets where you live or walking across campus, dark places. There was some of that in this, but actually the women who were participating were more concerned about the indoor spaces. So going to a party held by a fraternity on campus and not feeling safe there or having to share bathrooms, (laughs) gender neutral bathrooms, Mm where the men may have a different sort of norm norm of use mm. than the women. And they came up with some really good suggestions. And so we're hoping that maybe this year they can present some of that to the uh, administration and other people here on campus um, to help to change it. There, there's also been citizen science on campus using our voice around mental health and graduate students sort of what makes it harder and more stressful around campus, what makes it easier and a student that was all student run. Um, So we welcome, we would love to work with more Stanford students. Here's a pitch around, (laughs) you know, kinds of our voice projects, um, you know, that could be done. There have been discussions around the food access, you know, food choices, and actually, some of my colleagues have have used the discovery tool or something like that in their classes to have students 
figure out what makes it easier or harder for you to eat in ways that you would like to eat in healthy ways or, you know, and, and you know, what, what gets in the way of that and what makes it easier. So there, there would be a ton of things um, we could do on campus. So the things I love about our voice, again, having worked in so many different cultures, is how sim- the similarities across cultures tend to be greater than the differences. And I'll give you an example of, a, of an Our Voice project that happened in Mexico, in the lower income neighborhood in Mexico, and one that happened in Israel. And they were walking around, the residents in each of these locales were walking around their neighborhoods, identifying things and make it, made it harder, easier to walk and to be active in their neighborhoods. And the similarities were striking. One issue in both countries was stray animals. So in Mexico, stray dogs, where people felt threatened, the dogs really dirtied up the sidewalks, made it unpleasant to walk. Um, In Israel, it was stray animals, but it wasn't dogs, it was stray pigs. Because Israel has a lot of wild pigs that live in the hills, but with all of the construction and the building that's gone on in most countries, those their habitats have been diminished, and so they've been pushed into the neighborhoods. So here you have, you know, some cultural distinctions, but still, still the overall issues and barriers were quite similar. Wow, that's so interesting, and I think really highlights the, well, how technology can reach so many different places and and really help you gain a better understanding of the differences where you wouldn't have that perspective otherwise. You know, I could have never guessed, you know, that in Israel there's, you know, the wild pigs are making it challenging to be active. And um, I really appreciate that about your work is that it, it both has such a strong like local impact, but then you also um, are able to expand to all over the world and then really translate um, your findings into something tangible. Um, And I'm curious about what that sort of looks like then after you get this type of information. um, How does it translate? Does that typically look like a research study or is that, you know, quickly just taking action and making changes or yeah, what are sort of the the changes, how did the changes come about? Yeah, that, that's a great question. This is research. So, you know, and we try to get our students out of the habit of saying hard science versus soft science. This is science, <laughs> but yeah. it's very complex, right? It's much more complex than looking at something under a microscope or something, you know, where you, where you can tr- control everything. Very controlled, yeah. We love the complexity of real life and humans and humans in their environments. We embrace that. That's the clinical psychologist in me. Um, when I see a behavioral issue, my heart goes pitter pat. I don't run away <laughs> from it. I run towards it. You lean um, in I like that. <laughs> yeah, because we know that at the bottom of everything that affects the whole planet, it's human behavior, isn't it? And so um, a lot of our research is not just about human health, but planetary health. And we're very excited about the new school on on sustainability and earth that's being developed, because I think that that this intersection 
between human health and planetary health and sustainability is huge. And citizen science is one way we think, you know, it's it's a wonderful, people are a wonderful renewable resource for good that have not been tapped into sufficiently. And that's our, that's our mission is to turn as many people as we can into citizen scientists in their own, to make things relevant, as Hannah was saying, in your own backyard, but also to have it be able to be disseminated and shared and taken up in other locales. So we have a whole network, um, our global network. We have a lot of young people joining our network and working with us on projects all over the world. And we find that the most exciting because your generation obviously is the future of everything that's going to be happening on earth. So we love to work at that intersection and to learn from one another, the the cultural distinctions, as well as the similarities of what we can learn from one another. So yeah, we're, we're very excited about what's happening at Stanford, the interdisciplinary work. We publish what we do. So it's a mixed methods, just to get back to what Melissa was asking about. It's a mixed methods approach. We use qualitative data, the photos, the narratives that people take with the app as they walk around um, their neighborhoods. It's geocoded, geotagged. So we get maps. um, And then we can collect quantitative data on how people rate these things, um, you know, what they think could be done differently, how it affects their own uh, way of looking at something, their own stress levels, their engagement, um, being engaged in their communities, their building of social cohesion. So uh, it's definitely a mixed methods thing. We've had some wonderful students come through HB Rex throughout the years at pro summer program. One of them is very interested. Zach is very interested in how virtual reality and augmented reality can be used to further our voice in terms of not just the residents showing decision makers. This is what we found. And this is what, you know, but having their ideas of what it could look like augmented through augmented or virtual reality. So um, we're all in when it comes to using different kinds of technologies um, and ways to visualize the future (laughs) from residents' perspectives, you know, what would make a difference. And oftentimes it's the little things, you know, a crosswalk that could go in that costs hardly anything that that could make a difference. It's for older people, giving them a few more seconds on that countdown (laughs) as they're trying, and not just older people, but women pushing carriages, you know, babies and and things. Uh, You know, a lot of people are affected by that, people using wheelchairs. Um, So, you know, a few seconds can make the difference between someone being able to leave their neighborhood or not. And, and that's what we celebrate are the small wins that can make a difference for the whole neighborhood. You can tell how passionate I am about I could talk about no, this. I'm for feeling, the next I think I'm getting like goosebumps. <laughs> I know. 
I love when we hit this level of conversation with our guests, though, because you see them come alive. You see the passion and excitement they have for their own research and like really how it's driving these new innovations. And it's really going to change the future. So thank you for sharing that excitement and passion with us. Um, yeah, we're, we love to come along for that ride and get excited. Too. Um <laughs> And, and, and kind of on that note, just thinking of all the things we've talked about, all the different ways that you're really getting at all of these uh, questions and trying to translate them into real outcomes for people, how, empowering people to make their own outcomes and, um, and, and make their own research. I'm wondering if, there are, if you could share three learnings that you feel like personally have impacted your own health or behavior with us. They don't have to be the biggest ones, but just whatever three you've, you felt have been impactful for you. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Hannah. I think number one for me would be it's never too late to make mm. changes that are going to affect your health and the health of people around you. So there have been wonderful studies of some of my, from some of my colleagues on nonagenarians, you know, 95-year-olds, people who are in wheelchairs, um, who went through a strength training exercise, you know, regimen, and were able, at 93 years old, were able to get out of their wheelchairs and start to do some things that they hadn't been do doing for a while. So it is never too late. Um, if, if you haven't been doing some of these things and you may feel like, eh, well, you know, it's too late. Here I am. I'm 28 and I've never done these things. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to do it again. Um, but in fact, it is never too late to benefit from these small changes and not just in the physical activity field, but in what we eat and, you know, our uh, other things, how we control our stress, how we become a little more mindful of our own stress levels and build in some relaxation. I try to do this now every day is to find something positive that I feel good about. It may be reading my favorite murder mystery and maybe going for a small walk and maybe going to nature. So um, we, we've um, been working with the natural capital group here on campus who are incredible. And look, they study all the benefits of nature. And uh, that's this has become a very hot topic in this climate change era in particular, how important natural environments in urban, urban settings, trees, shade, you know, how, how important those things are. Um, so people, you know, can think about that. A second thing, um, again, that sort of connects with the first is that these little daily choices can really add up to important things. So nothing is too small to be able to have some benefits. So you don't have to make these huge changes in your lifestyle, but find little things. Add a piece of fruit to your breakfast, you know, this kind of thing. Um, all of those things can add up over time. So they don't have to be overwhelming. And the third one, I think, is just keep moving. You know, look out for those dangers of sitting too much. And this is true of people your age and above. Um, it's really important. And kids far younger than our college students too. You know, keep keep moving, stay active in whatever ways you can build in to your day. If you find yourself sitting too long, stand up. 
go for a little walk, go get a drink, have water or something. Or if you're on the phone, stand up and move while you're on the phone. Or or do what Melissa does and do a little happy dance while you're while you're making your salad or whatever you're doing. So, you know, I think for me, those kinds of things, small changes we find in communities, in people's own lives can make a, a huge difference over time. Yeah, that's wonderful. So it's never too late. Nothing too is too small to have a benefit and then keep moving. Those are three fantastic and, and really powerful uh, takeaways from, you know, not just what you said here, but I think our whole conversation, I think we've really um, learned that and, and that those were definitely takeaways from, from everything you said. So thank you so much for, for sharing everything with us. How can people learn more about your work um, learn more about you. I know we're feeling so inspired and if other people are and they want to <laughs> keep learning about the incredible work you're doing, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, well, come, come on over is what we would say. We would love it's to an open work invitation. with anybody on, in the Stanford community, anybody, including faculty, administrators, students at any level. Um, you know, it takes a village to change the world. And sometimes it just takes mm-hmm. a few people in the village. And that's what we love too. Um, so I, the best place to reach us, I think about the Our Voice um, Citizen Science things we're doing is simply at the website, ourvoice.stanford.edu. Our voice being one word, .stanford.edu. And you can go on there, catch up what we're doing. If you have a question or an idea, there's a place to connect with us, to contact us. Um, And again, hopefully we'll be able to share more uh, Stanford-oriented successes um, with citizen science uh, with you all. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in in the show notes so people can check that out. We'll put a link to your lab as well. And as a final question, what are you most excited for for the future of health research? You know, for me, again, it's this, this mandate to, to think about human health and planetary health and the fact that they're indistinguishable. And we have to stop compartmentalizing everything. We need interdisciplinary, cross-school, cross-university, cross-country solutions. Um, and to me, that that's the most exciting thing is how we're all in this together and uh, we can solve it together. Um, but we just have to be open to um, other th- ways of thinking, other solutions. Um, but, yeah, we're all about action. So what can we do to change things for the better? Totally. That I think you've blown my mind on how to think about our relationship with the planet in just this, you know, half hour conversation. So I'm so excited to share this and excited to see what the future holds. I don't think anyone's ever given an answer like that (laughs) to that question. Well, thank you so much. And thank thank you you so much, both of you for having me. It's been uh, just a delight. What a great way to start the day. So, <laughs> it really is going yeah. in now with lots of energy, ready to make mm-hmm. some positive changes. So. <laughs> Thanks so much, Abby. Great. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to our interview with Abby, and we hope you feel as inspired as us to fit a little more movement into your day. In this episode, we're giving away Boom water bottles to keep you hydrated and support your health, um, while especially while you're moving more. And as you're moving more, we'd love to hear what you're doing. So share a change you're going to make to your environment to make it more health enhancing or how you're going to incorporate a little bit more movement into your day. Or you can just share anything you learned from the episode. We'd love to hear it. And if you do, tag us on either Twitter or Instagram. And five lucky listeners will go (laughs) home with a Boom water bottle. Yes. Uh, Very exciting. The water bottles are quite a treat. They'll hydrate you. You'll be really excited. (laughs) (laughs) We hope that you learned a little bit about wellness today and feel empowered to help yourself and others live better. Thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, the Catalyst Project on Motivating Mobility that you can learn more at um, at motivatingmobility.stanford.edu. We'd also like to thank Wellbeing at Stanford, Stanford Recreation and Wellness for supporting Boom, and our good friend Peter Washington for creating the music for Boom. So thank you for listening and follow Boom at BiomechanicsOOM on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And feel free to email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com if you have any ideas, feedback on how we can make Boom better, or you just want to hang out with us. Yeah, we're open to all of that. (laughs) Biomechanics Biomechanics off our minds. minds.